Welcome to episode 98 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and trees handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and today we're talking through a history of the Manufacturing Advisory Group, MAG, in British Columbia, and we're doing that with David Murray. David Murray is Corporate Safety HR Environment Manager for Gorman Group and Co-Chairperson of the Manufacturing Advisory Group in British Columbia. We just had David on the podcast last week in episode 70, 97 rather, talking about lessons learned from the two British Columbia sawmill explosions in 2012. I'm really honored to have him back on this week talking about the Manufacturing Advisory Group. So David, I want to say thank you for coming on, um, sharing your time and coming on for a second time on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you again, Chris. I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion as well. It's a good topic. So yeah, in last week's episode, we talked about lessons learned from these two British Columbia sawmill explosions and changes within the industry that happened because of these tragedies. Part of that, David touched on briefly, was initiatives and projects undertaken by MAG, by the Manufacturing Advisory Group. So in this episode, we want to dig in further into MAG. Um, we're going to talk about what is the Manufacturing Advisory Group, when did they get involved with combustible dust safety, what initiatives have they undertaken. We're going to talk a bit about incident analysis, as this was identified as a priority area and something we talked about um, a little bit in last week's episode as well. And then just close out with any recommendations that uh, David has from his experience for other associations looking to improve and increase safety in the the member companies that they're serving in their industries. So David, we talked about your background in last week's episode. So I encourage the listener to check that out if they're interested more in David and, and what he's done in industry and also those sawmill explosions. But in, for this episode, can you just give us some background on the Manufacturing Advisory Group and what role they play in BC? Yeah, certainly, Chris. Uh, in a nutshell, the MAG is BC's sawmill and employer safety group. So there are safety representatives such as myself from sawmill companies, and it's been expanded to other wood product manufacturing types of, of companies, participating in sharing best practices, safety benchmarking, and undertaking safety projects that would be useful universally for the industry. Uh, the group is steered by the industry's CEOs and its administration has been supported by the BC Forest Safety Council for about five years. So the MAG group itself has been around for how many years? I know it's been supported by those groups for five, but it's been around for longer than that, hasn't it? Yeah, I would, I would say that um, this current version of it uh, since 2009. Okay. And when and how did MAG get involved with combustible dust safety? When did that become a priority area? I'll say that we've always shared safety best practices since inception of the group. Um, and that will have included some various wood dust hazard control programs. Obviously, though, the, the two 2012 sawmill combustible dust explosions catalyzed the MAG towards this critical problem and ultimately forever change the group's dynamic. Can you give us an idea of how many members are in, in that group or how many companies are involved with it, just to get an idea of the size? Yeah, um, all the, the major operators and, um, and then medium and a couple of smaller operators. So I would say uh, all told maybe about 20 different mill companies. And we'll include in the show notes for this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 98 um, a link to the BC Forest Safety Council's website, which is bcforestsafe.org. And then if you go to that slash mag, that's sort of the 
the place where you can find the information on the the manufacturing advisory group, their priorities, 2019 priorities, but also as some of their initiatives um, over the last number of years. And I think we're going to be talking about some of these in this episode. What kind of initiatives have MAG undertaken with regards to combustible dust over the last number of years? Good question. Initially in 2012, we shared and compiled combustible dust programs, procedures, training, best practices. So that was kind of the first set of information that we uh, we started to collect and share and modify, revise early on. It was, it was similar to how we practiced in previous years where we would, um, we would kind of open our, open our gates and, and share these sorts of things that we're working for our respective companies. And if there was a gold nugget in there, uh, another company could, could use that for their own program. But following the 2012 uh, explosions, the, the key critical project that um, really put the MAG in um, kind of a different ballpark was the uh, combustible dust audit program. So the, the outcome of that was the audit tool itself, uh, the comprehensive technical standards for each element being audited, auditor selection and training criteria, and audit how-to guidelines, an audit logistics model mirroring ISO protocols. And um, I'll, I'll flag this that um, it was recognized um, by the BC Safety Authority, now called BC or Technical Safety BC with the Lieutenant Governor Safety Innovation Award. So it, it has been a very uh, helpful tool for us to really understand what needs to be in place in each of the sawmills um, and, and then subsequent to the other wood product manufacturers and um, to confirm that these things are effectively being applied in each of the facilities, making sure that uh, regular routine audit protocols are carried out. It isn't just a, a one-off. Other initiatives and projects that the MEGS undertaken um, with combustible dust include the um, the Fire Inspection Prevention Initiative, or uh, FIPI, with the BC Safety Regulators. Um, and really, uh, from what I can uh, see as a, a key output out of that, amongst other things, but the key was the employee and employer training, and then the combustible dust programs and procedures. Some really good stuff out of that. The MEG and its CEOs uh, funded a scientific study through FP Innovations on the analysis of wood dust combustibility. And we, we did collaborate and we continue to collaborate with the safety regulators, WorkSafe BC, Technical Safety BC, and the Office of the Fire Commissioner on various combustible dust initiatives and improvements. Funny you mentioned the FP Innovation because I just spent some time digging that report report up um, to share on a for a question inside the Dust Safety Academy around preventing uh, self-combustion in in hog fuel and other uh, kind of sawdust piles and that um, and, and wood chip piles and that report I'll try to see but yeah we have it inside the Dust Safety Academy the FP Innovation Group allowed us to share their um, hog pile management effective management techniques for piles of comminated forest biomass to prevent combustion degradation I don't know if that was exactly the report you're talking about, but they had done some work before that that's really um, instructive in these different kinds of safety areas in related to sawmills and, and wood processing. 
And then you mentioned two others. So the Combustible Dust Audit Program, which I just grabbed the link for from the, the MAG website or the part of the website that's on B- BC4 Safety Council. And I believe that has, oh yeah, it has a list of the audit criteria in that, which is a, a full document that has um, walking through leadership, administration, walking through different job roles, has management changes, has sort of checklists and information on safety related combustible dust through that program. So include links to that in the show notes as well. And you mentioned the uh, the one in the middle is the one that I missed. So this was, I think, fire investigation and uh, prevention. Fire inspection prevention initiative. It's kind of a mouthful and it doesn't quite make sense, but uh, it's, it's uh, acronym is FIPI. Um, and uh, it was early on, one of the um, key initiatives uh, that um, really brought stakeholders in this this problem together to work on on some sort of um, improvement across uh, the industry and um, probably one of the first and, and most effective collaborative efforts we had between regulators, employers, union, and uh, it did provide some really uh, uh, good products at the outcome of that. So. Um, employee employer training and then kind of best practices on a combustible dust program i mean these are some of the we talked about this in last week's podcast episode about needing to build out this sort of collaborative approach between having trust between the the different groups involved and these are some of the outcomes and learning products that can be developed when you have a focused effort on you know a very specific area like this combustible dust so i do we'll pull together the the links I think I finally found the the front door because I found several back doors to the the mag um, material. But if you go to the bc4safe.org/mag and then click on resources and then combustible dust, I think that has the list of all the things we was talking about. And I can see, yeah, everything's there. Okay, so that'd be the place to go. We'll include links to that in the show notes as well, so others can. Because I mean, those documents are thirty and forty and fifty pages long, so we're not gonna be able to go through them in, in this episode. But I want to give an idea of what some of those initiatives were so that people knew that they could find those. Cause we do get people reaching out this morning. I got an email from an individual in, in South Africa asking specifically for fire and combustion techniques or, or ideas for sawdust piles. I'm going to actually sent him the FB innovation report. Uh, so these generation of this, these learning materials really extend beyond the borders of the groups that are creating them. So I, I want to thank Meg and thank you for putting them together. And that's why it's important to, you know, share on this podcast, I guess, help get that to distribute out to those who need it. What are some of the current initiatives and priorities that are set by the MAG group? And David and I talked about before, because MAG is the, the acronym manufacturer, the manufacturing advisory group. And then to say the MAG group is a little bit redundant, but sometimes this rolls off the tongue that way. So I will try to, if I do slip up and say MAG group, that's why. But what are some of the initiatives and priorities today or, or you know, the, for this year for the mag group was related to combustible dust uh well i'll, I'll say that um we've learned from what we've accomplished on lowering the risk of combustible dust in our in our facilities and tried to expand it with the other sorts of serious injury and fatality risks that are present in our workplaces um, using the same sort of practices in attempting to predict um, the the degree of risk that remains issues that need to be solved. 
um, but from a broader perspective on on the whole site's um, safety. So that is what we're focused in on, and it does relate to combustible dust as well. That we're um, we're looking to try to move the dial towards exploring an industry wide adoption of a new safety metric called SIFP. Um, and its purpose is to measure the types and tally of close call events that had the potential to cause uh, serious injuries or fatalities. And, and this is a far removal from our current safety performance metric that centers around lagging workers compensation related type uh, injury data. Other current priorities with the MAG um, outside of combustible dust is um, COVID safety protocols, of course and safety training enhancements and hazard recognition and supervisor safety, which, um, you know, combustible dust will, will probably be a, a part of, of both of those initiatives. Yeah, and SIFP stands for serious injury or fatality prevent potential. Is that correct? Correct. Excellent. Yeah. So, and I think that's a, you know, it makes sense, right? Where if you're looking at things like lost time, incident rate, fatality rates, all these rates that are lagging indicators they've happened after the fact, you're never going to predict and stop the next incident. Um, hopefully, you're going to be able to retrospectively look at what happened and generate lessons learned, learn those lessons learned, apply them, and and not forget that information. But you're always sort of pulling that ahead and forward instead of you know, tracking your progress over time. So this SIFP um, was looking at the potential for serious injury or the potential for fatalities and is more of a, a leading indicator. And I think this ties into this idea of, I, if I'm looking at the MAG Group's priorities, uh, 2019 says, the 2019 priorities are MAG audit development, uh, pedestrian, mobile equipment, and third is, is better incident analysis. Does this SIFP tie into this better incident analysis priority? Are those related to each other? Uh, yes, Chris. Um, so well, our MEG's been moving towards digitizing our safety data from our individual company safety systems. Um, and we're moving it into a collective portal and, and, and into an integrated industry safety system called EHS Analytics. The, the data that is currently really been collected within our safety systems is largely that that lagging type of injury type data. Absolutely, um, any professional industry, heavy industry will will be investigating close calls and hazards. The the whole SIFP piece is um, is around paying greater attention, um, almost treating them as though that, that serious injury fatality risk did actually occur um, so that you get the rigor behind um, the actions and attention to um, preventing that from happening. Because a lot of these things, when they happen, all it would take is, um, you know, a couple seconds difference or um, a hand being placed in this location rather than that somebody sneezing <laughs> and and you know that that serious risk or fatality could occur so we we do really find it exciting to to really drill down into these types of events treat them differently uh collate them um categorize them go you know what is is are these types of events mostly around people entering machine machinery without properly controlling them from inadvertent movement or is it 
is there a greater number of events that involve mobile equipment and pedestrian interface? Or um, are there a bunch of um, minor um, events related to combustible dust that are, are telling a facility that you, you have some gaps in your program that need to be addressed? The, the better incident analysis work is, like I said, dumping in that information from each of our individual companies safety uh, databases for a forensic look into our, our in, uh, more, more about our injury trends and, and some of those causes. Um, but again, more exciting to me is our SIP direction. That particular program could potentially be supported through the digitizations of our systems or um, simply exist in parallel and outside of that project. I will say that the SIP program is working well already in a few of our individual May companies and including my company, Gorman Group. What we're, what we're really pressing forward on is um, if we can get this used across the industry, it will indeed allow us to deep dive into the prolific or emerging, emerging industry, <laughs> serious injury and fatality risk before they result in that tragedy. I was going to say, I wrote down three so on this area of, you know, better incident analysis, I wrote down three bullet points here. So like digitizing the data. So that's about storage and how to actually physically, well, not physically, but digitally store the data. So like that's one part of it. But then you're talking about some higher level things like changing what data we're collecting. And that's sort of moving from, you know, lead lagging indicators to um, SIFP or, or whatever the other models are. And then the, the, the third part is is analysis of the data. So improving how we're storing the data, improving what data we're collecting, improving analysis of the data. I think it'd be instructive on the the serious injury or fatality potential, like to think of a couple examples. So I'll give one. And that is say you have a, a bag filling operation, it blows off and dust gets released into the air and you have a, a optically thick cloud that forms. And maybe there were workers in the area, but it didn't ignite. I mean, that with the criteria you're talking about, that would be a, a, a near miss. Um, that would be a, a pretty close call if it if somebody was welding in the area, if there's any sort of ignition source. As some some of the old timers might say, if lightning striked out of the air and God provided us with an ignition source, um, that and, and some people say, then why do we bring God into this discussion? And, and maybe we shouldn't. That's what happens when you record these podcasts sometimes. But I mean, that's a, that's a pretty close call in my mind. You had everything there to have an explosion plus people in the location. So that's one example. Another example might be if you have an open deflagration, say you did have somebody welding and a cloud gets formed and a small um, deflagration occurs, but it's, you know, it's just a flash fire and, and nobody's injured. Well, that's also, you know, has a pretty high serious injury and fatality potential because everything was there. It just maybe didn't have fugitive dust that caused it to, you know, have a secondary explosion or something. But it changes the way I think we think about these. Can you give us maybe any other examples from from your experience of the different perspective? So, some people may say that I guess it's not a it's not an issue if nobody gets hurt, but we're trying to say it is an issue if nobody gets hurt, and we need to track and analyze that. Can you give us some more examples about what these near misses might look like, or examples of what close calls might look like that traditionally folks may not see as close calls? Okay, so. Um... I'll, I'll touch on one around combustible dust related and then um, maybe a couple of other examples in, in mill safety. And um, it, it could be um, rather than an actual dust cloud being created um, in those events, it could be 
even maybe lesser uh, risky. It could be that there's a uh, there's a section, a, a contained area down in the in the basement or in a chipper room or something like that that a wall of horizontal surfaces has um, combustible fine dust uh, exceeding the the eighth of an inch limit. These are all components of that uh, explosion pentagram that now you you have an event that creates a um, that to be dispersed into the air and in that particular area that there might be some some hot motors or some other sparking device it's in a contained room uh, you know just having any any of the the uh, criteria for that um, that pentagram to um, potentially be formed um, I would suggest is something that should be on that list because whatever control mechanism that you have in place to prevent that one of those uh, five items to be in place um, is obviously being, it, it's a, it is a miss. And if you, if you walk by that, or if one just cleans that up and doesn't really do a bit of an investigation around how, so how did this get missed in our cleanup routine? Or how can we make this so that there isn't horizontal services for this fine dust to land on? You, you end up having a kind of a, either a loosey-goosey result um, or, or no result at all. And eventually, there is the, a greater potential for um, the remaining items in that uh, pentagram to emerge. And you might have a, a devastating um, explosion. So simply even just uh, coming across one of the criteria that could lead to an SIFP, to me, is something that's investigatable and belongs on that on that list and, and categorize as such. The other, um, other maybe more common, more frequently um, types of SIPs that um, I've been involved with seeing in, in companies that I've worked for are uh, either mobile equipment related where it could be a spilled load that's across a main um, crossing path from say the, the parking lot into the, the sawmill facility. And even if um, there was nobody around, um, this is a particular area where there likely could be somebody around. So if there was a spilled load of, of lumber or plywood or material right across that walkway. I would call that as a as an SIFP. It's a close call. Should we if, we, if we actually pay attention to that rather than just pick it up and it's it's uh, it's a problem because you know that load needs to be picked up and it's usually by the the cranky forklift or or loader operator that spilled it in the first place and and. That's often in, in history been the, the action that's been thought of as, uh, well, he or she won't do that again. But let's, let's pay attention to that and go, you know what, um, uh, that spilled load in itself, should circumstances be slightly different, could have resulted in three people getting crushed by that load. Let's investigate that. Let, how, many, how many times are, are these sorts of events happening on this site? Is it one time in a month? Is it one time in a year? Is it 100 times in a month? understanding the degree in which um, something like that is happening um, will allow you to focus your efforts towards um, that particular risk that is of the serious variety um, and um, place your, your money and your efforts towards that. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that discussion. I, while you're talking, I, I found an article by uh, yourself and, and Luna Kurz on getting ahead on safety, predicting, eliminating high severity incidents where you do a really good job explaining some of these ideas, there's an interesting comparison here between medical incident rate and SIFP. 
and instance that you know maybe are included as a as an MIR and not an SIFP, and then include as an SIFP and not an MIR. So we'll include that in the show notes as well for this episode. I do want to highlight something you're saying. So I'm going to tie this all the way back to I think something in the article that I mentioned that you wrote last week's podcast. And there's a quote from it's in the business world. It's generally attributed to Peter Ducker, but you can't match what you don't measure. In order to to match something, you need to measure it. There's different ways it's written. This really ties into this because, like you're saying, if you don't measure the number of times your dust accumulations are thicker than the minimum allowable tolerances, your chances of improving that system are, are pretty low. There's a couple of examples of it. So maybe you you just always assume that your safety your cleanup program is always keeps them below required levels. Well, then you're never you know if you're never reporting on when they're above, you're just going to think that you're below and and you know, you're not going to improve that system over time. On the other side, if you don't do any any sort of fugitive dust cleanup, then you're also, you know, not improving your system. In order to know how good you're doing, you need to know how often you're working in abnormal conditions or conditions that are defined outside the, you know, what the tolerable level is. And the only way you can improve that, I'd say, is you need to measure that. So if that's happening, you know, once a day, then can you get that down to once a, a week and once a month and, you know, eventually get to the point where you're never above future dust levels that are above the, the minimum tolerance required. But that's only going to happen, like you're saying, if you if you actually measure the times that you are out of compliance, for lack of a better word. I don't even want to say compliance because it's going to make maybe people tune out a bit. But just the fact of the matter, if you're not measuring it, then you're not going to be able to manage this and improve safety. Correct. You nailed it. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I this is my first introduction to SIFP. Um, I should have probably found it in my pre-show research so that I could um, dig in deeper and uh, become more knowledgeable about it myself. But we'll probably have some more episodes on this move forward because I can see it already as a valuable metric and and mindset and frame to which to to look at these these high loss incidents and. More importantly, the potential for high loss incidents, which I think is the the road to improving safety in in these industries. So I will look into that in more detail. We'll include the link in the show notes to the article there. So in this interview, then we really talked around Mag Group, some of the history there. Uh, we talked about some of the priorities and initiatives: the Combustible Dust Audit Program, the FEP, and again, I, I didn't write it down, but I think it's I'll have to get you to say what's FEP stand for. Fire Inspection Prevention Initiative. Okay. Rolls off the tongue like <laughs> SIP, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know if we can start calling SIFP SIFP, but I, I didn't want to call it that because I don't want to start something if the, the owners of the, the program don't uh, don't want it. Some people refer to it like that. Okay. I It seemed natural, but I didn't want to do it if, uh, yeah, we try not to name things on this podcast. They might stick. Um, we talked about the hog fuel uh, work done with the FP Innovation team, and we talked about this more recent work. Well, I guess it's been done over a while now, but the the initiative for last year about improving incident reporting and how that ties into things like um, the serious incident and fatality potential of incidents in this SIFP. I'm recording there. So the the last thing I'd like to touch on before closing up this interview. And we talked about through this interview, we talked about the last one about building trust between groups and 
you know, improving safety that way. And the, what I want to ask, do you, do you have any other recommendations for associations and working groups to increase um, awareness or improve safety related to combustible dust or even safety more general with their, their member companies? If there's somebody in the association says, yes, this is important. We think maybe our member companies don't realize the potential that the hazards that they're dealing with, or we want to provide training or we want to provide awareness or, or whatever it is. I'm just, do you have any thoughts and ideas that uh, somebody that's working in those associations might be able to implement to, to help with, uh, with their member companies? Yeah, I thought of this question here, uh, Chris, and um, I have a couple of recommendations. First, I, I strongly believe in the adoption of a serious risk model for measuring and addressing safety performance. That's critical. Report, investigate, track close calls, um, minor fire explosions to understand the risk that is present in a facility or, or even as an industry, if you're able to get it to that point. Use those findings to recognize where to focus money and efforts to reduce or eliminate that risk factor. Use an audit like the MAG dust audit to confirm practices are meeting the required standards and to discover and fix gaps. Icing on the cake would be to actually incorporate those reported close calls and minor fire explosions into the audit process for an even better understanding of the risk that persists. You have to remember too that um, whatever the industry is that does create that powder like dust that can lead to a combustible dust explosion, they've got a, a full gamut of other safety risks that tend to result in an injury more often than I would suggest a combustible dust related one would. So in order to keep it on the radar, you do need to have a program that understands, looks out for uh, those types of risks, combustible dust or otherwise. Otherwise, when we, we spoke of complacency, I think in the, in the last week's episode, complacency will, will creep in. It will, it will simply um, have a combustible dust problem fall off the radar unless you are actually continually looking out for measuring, tracking, and recognizing any sort of persistence around the risk of a combustible dust event occurring. Secondly, around associations and working groups, uh, I believe they all have a common goal. And uh, referencing combustible dust, it's to reduce or eliminate that risk, particularly of the catastrophic degree. I believe that each stakeholder group or individuals in those groups would agree that collaborating with experts in each entity would best serve that goal. Here's what happens though. Factors come into play that results in barriers for a comprehensive level of collaboration. So my advice is to find ways to break down those walls um, that prevent that transparent cooperation between them. Now bear in mind, regulators, I'm not saying they, they shall not enforce regulations or should not enforce regulations. Um, and there's certainly a place for using consequences to incent employers to come into compliance. But employers will be much more inclined to show their, their messy safety corners if there's a trusting relationship with the regulatory agent to help them through that safety challenge. Um, likewise, with other groups, a, a trusting relationship built between um, those operations that have unions and the employers, um, that can move mountains in safety. Safety associations that um, support employers and employees, um, instead of taking a pseudo-regulatory approach, 
um, can result in step change safety improvements. I've, we've seen this. And, and it might sound idealistic, all that I've just said, um, but I do believe it is possible. I've seen this happen involved with the combustible dust crisis that occurred in BC. In BC's case, however, <laughs> it took not one, but two deathly explosions for the culture of how BC sawmill combustible dust safety is managed to shift to the dramatic level I've described. And I, I truly don't think that it has to be that way, nor should it. Yeah, I think those are really helpful ideas. And, and like I said, I, I, I know and talk with individuals that are in safety associations and, and other industries um, that are trying to to do this. So to hear about the successes and to hear about the, the even some of the struggles and to hear about the, the things that the recommendations you have for doing it right is going to be of immense value to help those groups as well. So I do appreciate coming on and sharing. Um, I appreciate the work that uh, MAG is doing. And yeah, I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and continuing to share this knowledge and, and continuing to do the work that you're doing with that group and that the member companies are doing as well. Your your company, um, Gorman Group, and, and all the other sawmills out there that are contributing time and um, people hours and I'm sure money in, in many cases as well to improving these initiatives. It's, uh, it is the, the, the way that uh, we can move, move things together. So I'll say thank you for that. And um, I think that's it for this episode. So thank you for coming on. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I'll, I'll say one last thing is I, I can't speak highly enough about um, the MAG member companies. Um, as you described there, you know, one, our CEOs often say uh, we compete on every aspect of our businesses except for safety. And um, it's not embodied more than at, at the MAG table. And um, there's a lot of efforts uh, that are, are placed forward um, by our MAG members um, and the BC Forest Safety Council um, administrating our, our uh, group has been a, a great help to move things forward at a, at a much more rapid pace than, than we were when we were just a kind of a group where, you know, doing that kind of thing on the side of our desk. Um, they've been a, a great help over the last few years that we've had them um, connected up with our, with our group. I, again, I, I do appreciate this opportunity to talk about the May group and, um, you know, some of the, the ways that that type of an association can be more effective than other jurisdictions. Uh, thank you, David. And I appreciate having you on and I look forward to, to getting you on a chance to get you on the podcast again, but we'll, we'll let you rest after doing the back to back interviews. Um, but we do look forward to a chance to, to get you or, or other uh, folks that are involved in combustible safety from, from your group um, on the podcast again in the future. So thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and David Murray, corporate safety, HR and environment manager for Gorman group and co-chairperson of the Manufacturing Advisory Group in British Columbia. We've been talking about the history of MAG and what they've been doing in regards to combustible dust safety, but also more broadly safety in the industries that they are they are serving and working with. So David gave some background for MAG. They are involved mostly with the sawmills and groups of related companies within British Columbia. In terms of combustible dust, that was always a certainly the, the fire hazards and respiratory hazard and that sort of thing were always on the radar um, in terms of deflagration and, and large-scale facility explosions certainly came on the radar in 2012 with the two incidents that we, we mentioned in episode 97 of the podcast really you know spurring coordinated efforts there we talked through some of the initiatives that MAG has overtaken over the years including combustible dust audit program the VP project on 
preventing and inspecting for incidents that are happening. And also partnerships with other companies like FP Innovation on sawdust pile and hog fuel, um, combustible dust safety. And we spent quite a bit of time around this idea of better, and we called it incident analysis, although we're really even moving farther up the chain than, than incidents. But really, it's moving from lagging indicators to leading indicators and some metrics that could come into play there. So this included and includes uh, in the show notes um, some articles by David and some of his coworkers on this, but included the serious incident and fatality potential criteria and how that's a, a metric that can be tracked and followed over time and used to manage hazards, uh, things that you're looking with. We have some examples here, like how many times do you exceed minimum threshold levels for fugitive dust? And, you know, even more, you know, acute hazards. Um, well, that, that is an acute hazard. So that was the whole point of that. But other acute hazards are, you know, like bag blow off and you have a dust that fills a room or you have a, a deflagration or a fire with nobody injured. Um, how are we tracking and analyzing this data and using that to better understand what's going on, but then also better to predict the potential for serious injury and fatalities? And that's what that metric's about. Um, I have some learning to do there as well, but I appreciate David introducing me to that and to the work that Mag is doing in this area. Um, and then to close up, we talked around some ideas that David has with his experience about how other industry associations can go about developing this collaborative approach about partnering with their, say, their regulatory groups or their member companies um, all around increasing safety um, and preventing large-scale um, serious incidents from happening at their facilities, um, improving safety in this type of area. So I appreciate Dave coming on. I appreciate the work that the Manufacturing Association manufacturing advisory group rather than British Columbia are doing. And I do hold a lot of the work that they're doing out there in BC up quite highly. Um, groups like the Woodpell Association of Canada, um, who's who's mainly focused out there, the Manufacturing Safety Alliance of BC, um, BC Force Safety Council, even the regulatory bodies like WorkSafe BC and others are really taking this collaborative approach and working together to come up with these programs and initiatives for improving safety across a variety of industries, but also in combustible dust safety. So that's it for this episode. I want to say that I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope that everyone has a safe and productive week ahead. And I want to thank you specifically for what you're doing in industries handling combustible dust and making them safer every day around the world.